It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. So welcome back, everyone, to the Kriya Yoga Podcast. I'm here with returning guest, Phil McLemore, who is a retired military chaplain, a Kriya Yoga meditation teacher with an emphasis on Christian mysticism. Um, Phil was ordained by Roy Jean Davis, and he's based out of Utah. And those of you who might remember, uh, Phil was a guest way back when we got started with the podcast. He was um, a guest in episode three, where we talked about his path from Mormon to Kriya Yogi. And then he came back again for episode 14, uh, where we discussed yoga and the Christ consciousness. So I'd like to encourage you to go back and check out those podcasts. Uh, today, we're going to talk about how to make the most of our Kriya Yoga meditation process. And once we're established in our meditation process, how to really deepen that experience. So thank you for being here today, Phil. It's great to see you. Oh, it's always fun to talk with you. Yeah. Um, so today, you know, we've, we've talked about numerous things over these past two years or so that we could discuss. And the first topic I'd like to explore is what kind of advice you would give people who already have a steady meditation practice, how to make that more dynamic and alive, how to deepen that. And then maybe towards the end of our time together, we might talk about um, some more philosophical points such as does the eye persist after enlightenment? Um, but let's get started with uh, meditation and deepening that process. So you've been meditating for a while. So I'm curious, what has your, what has your, how would you describe your progression uh, from beginning to meditate into those deeper stages that you've experienced? I, I began with really classic, basic, yoga mantra meditation at that point i was studying with deepak chopra and was training to be one of his instructors so the first six years of my meditation practice i actually did his his form of mantra meditation it was very very effective for me and i did that for about six years and and over the course of those six years um, I, I had really my foundational, for lack of a better expression, expansion of consciousness or deepening of consciousness, where I just became keenly aware of the deeper reality, the one reality. And uh, like many, when you first hear about that or think about that, it's quite scary to the ego, because the ego is so confined and limited, it's like gazing into the sky. You know, it's so expanse, expansive, it scares the, the poor little ego or ego mind half to death. And so um, to suddenly find myself not only comfortable with that, but having my sense of self grounded and established in that was quite exciting and ecstatic. Um. And so 
that those foundational experiences took place in those first six years of just mantra meditation. Well, then as I began to study more about yoga, I ran across Yogananda, immersed myself in his writings. I tried to study with Self-Realization Fellowship. Um, as you know, and maybe others know, uh, they have a very rigid, structured, one right way of doing things. Uh, I found that quite frustrating. And that was really what motivated me to contact Roy. I had had some of his materials, knew he had been a direct disciple. And so when I called Roy and was explaining my difficulties of trying to do it the one right way, uh, you know, he laughed and fell out of his chair. So um, in any case, Roy began to um, teach me how to take the basic principles and practices of Kriya Yoga and in, in such a way that it was adapted to my mind and personality type and so forth. And then, as we talked about previously, uh, I began to practice Kriya Pranayama, which is a, a new aspect to my just basic mantra meditation practice. And it was very difficult for me. It was not natural. It didn't flow well. Uh, I felt quite guilty or inadequate and struggled with it for about six months before it finally began to be discernible to me and to flow in a natural way. And if I remember right, you said to me, oh, just six months. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I struggled with that much longer. So that made me feel a whole lot better. <laughs> yeah. um, and I noticed the, the benefit of the Kriya Pranayama practice on top of what I had been doing was a a better i don't know how to describe this i suddenly was able to comprehend not just experience oneness but to comprehend it in my mind it suddenly made sense right it wasn't foreign anymore it was the way i thought and the way i experienced life and it just instead of being a mystery of some sort it just made sense this is the way life is right this is the way this is what the foundation is about and uh, that seemed to be directly related to Kriya Pranayama over a particular period of time. Yeah. And so um, I did, because I had this tendency of wanting to do the best thing or the right thing or the best way or the right way, mm -hmm. you know, I'm always studying to find out these things. And of course, in the Kriya Yoga tradition, there's an endless number of alleyways you can go down to try to find the right way or the right. best way or the claimed <laughs> best way or the original way. Yeah. Uh, and so I spent some time studying the different representations of Kriya Yoga and traditions. And You're talking about like different branches of the lineage and different approaches that different teachers have? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And I was stunned. I, I was a little confused at first because – when I first learned um, Kriya Pranayama, Roy taught it one way, and then the next year, he was teaching it a different way. And 
that really threw me, you know, and, and so, you know, we talked about that a time or two, and I'm just assuming that what he was teaching was reflecting his personal practice. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you mind if I ask what the differences were? Well, yeah, if you look at the early issues of Radiance, you know, which was the magazine he made for Kriya yogis, Kriya, those who'd been initiated. Um, at first, he was teaching at the, the path as uh, straight up and down, uh, apparently the way Lahiri Mahasaya taught it, but from the root to the crown and back down uh, in a straight line. And then in those early radiances, in parentheses, he would say, and you can also try this way. And it was kind of the Sri Yukteswar Yogananda way of up to the spiritual eye and back down. Right. And um, so I would, and then later he just started teaching the up to the spiritual eye and back down. He right. wasn't doing the straight up and down anymore. Uh-huh. And um, just through practice, at first I had preferred the straight up and down. And so then, you know, uh, <laughs> mind that wants one right way. That was pretty tormenting. And I kept trying to get him to commit, you know, it works best. And yeah. of course his response is always, uh, it's wor- what works best for you. Right. So um, that's when I had that fateful meeting with him where I was still pestering him about this. And he just got, uh, I don't think angry is the right word, but uh, perturbed or fed up with the same discussion. Um, He just finally said, suck it up into your head and shut up, you know. (laughs) Uh, And then he expanded on that by by saying, look, Phil, this is an intelligent life force. It knows where to go. Exactly, yeah. So then it dawned on me that uh, this mastery of life force, I think as Yogananda would talk about it, um, isn't me controlling it in the right way. Uh, Maybe there's a need for that sort of thing at the beginning, but uh, it's not about control. It's about awakening to the presence of the life force and then allowing it to move as it needs to, to purify. Uh, that purifies one of my words, but I don't know if that translates to a lot of people, but yeah, to purify the mind, to purify the subconscious, to purify the body right. so that there's a harmony with body and mind and spirit, uh, you know, the purification to bring about a transformation and an integration and a wholeness. And um, the first thing I noticed when I began to do that was, and, and Roy was right, I just I just gave up, you know, trying to follow the right path. Mm-hmm. And, um, and at that point, I had been exposed to, um, you know, Swami Nirvanananda, who has a an interesting way of doing it. And um, our brother over there, Furio in Italy, uh-huh. yeah. he was explaining a variety of different ways up and part way down and then back up and part way. You know, I was like, ah, right. So uh, I finally just pulled it up and, and let it go where it wanted to go. Uh-huh. So 
I found that when I did that, I just um, at first drew the current up into my brain with the intent that it would know what to do and where to go. I had a very interesting period where I would feel vibration. I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, almost little twitches or vibrations throughout different parts of my brain. One day it would be on the left side. Another day it would be in the back. Another day it would be over in the front right. And, and I just kind of surrendered to this movement. And after, oh, I don't know, weeks or months, that um, sensation, phenomena or sensation of vibration in the brain finally settled and wasn't there anymore. I can only interpret that as the life force literally making changes in the way my brain functions. So, you know, in Roy's words, I could process higher states of awareness. Right. The brain has that capability. The brain is so amazing. I mean, you know, it was designed to mediate the spiritual world with the material world. Problem is we've, we spend all our time with our senses flowing outward, interacting with the material world and then how we think about it and desire it and fear it and, right. and don't, you know, we, you know, we, we end up in this mental reality with outward flowing senses and then there, we just don't develop the brain's natural ability to become aware of and to interact with spiritual states of awareness mm-hmm. and to integrate those two. So I'm just, I, I, I can only conclude that, that the life force in my Kriya Pranayama practice was uh, changing, transforming, restructuring, whatever the right word is. So my brain could deepen and develop the capacity for spiritual awareness in the body and then beyond the body, you know, the transcendent. Mm -hmm. So when you were doing the, uh, when when you said you were doing the Deepak Chopra and the mantra meditation, I'm just kind of curious. I I only know a little bit about that. Did that also include like the listening to the inner sounds or was this an actual mantra that you repeated? Yeah, he's he wasn't big on inner sound listening. I, I rarely come across that except in Kriya Yoga. Okay, okay. And his uh, he has a, a system called primordial sound meditation. Maybe that's where I'm getting confused. And so what he does is he he has these birth charts. Um, I think David Frawley helped him craft this. Yeah, but he has like 108 mantras based on birth chart. Okay. okay. And so you get one of those 108 mantras based on when and where you were born. And it was very effective for me. I mean, yeah. um, I was monkeying around with mantras and reading books and experimenting with different mantras. And so I just received that and it worked extremely well. Mm-hmm. And then, um, at one point, I was meditating, and all of a sudden, my mind was chanting a different mantra. Hmm. And it was a mantra that just self-manifested, and it was a mantra that um, really was a harmony of my, my uh, Christian and yogic harmonization. Mm-hmm. So, for... You know, I had all these years of 
of Christianity and Christian ministry, particularly being a military chaplain. And, and then now I'm on the yoga path and the yoga path was so much more productive, so much more transformative than what I had experienced in Christianity. And so I had a bit of an identity crisis for X number of months, you know, am I a Christian guy or a yogi guy? And, you know, for my wife and my family, that was a pretty scary, you know, who's coming out at the end of the tunnel here. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that funny though? I mean, when you really think about it, <laughs> like really nothing changes, just a label and how that can really just scare people. Oh, absolutely. Like it, it, when you really think about it, it's like, why? <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I, I probably explained this before, but uh, when I was work after I was a military chaplain, I worked as a hospice chaplain for eight years. And um, I would often read Matthew 11, 28 to 30, where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Hmm. And at that point I realized yoke, the word yoke comes from the same root word as yoga. And in that instant, my Jesus world and my yoga world harmonized. I mean, instantly. Uh, the New Testament, the sayings of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, it just all became one thing to me. There was no more disharmony at all. Right. So um, it was right after that I wrote a very large article called The Yoga of Christ. So right. And we talk, I believe we did talk about that in yeah, that episode 14. So people yeah, can sure. go back and, and check that out. <clears throat> so um, anyway, this self-manifesting mantra um, had two parts to it. And the first part was um, somewhat Christian, not specifically Christian, but certainly Jesus. And the second part was uh, yogic in nature. And it just manifested. And all of a sudden, that was my new mantra. Mm, right. um, and then um, it was probably soon after that that um, I entered the Kriya Yoga path so um, yeah I, as I mentioned I this idea of, of studying the different techniques and wanting the original or wanting the the um, the best one it was clearly a dead end. It was obviously obvious that Lahiri Mahashai taught a variety of different ways, depending on the student. Right. Uh, it was also obvious that Yogananda simplified the whole. I mean, you study these manuals. There are hundreds of techniques and a, a variety of different ways to practice these hundreds of techniques. You know, right. I mean, you'd have to be a full time in a cave, nothing else to do yogi person with someone feeding you to be able to do all this stuff. It's just completely impractical in my view. Right. And so I began to appreciate Yogananda's simplification to essentials. And then I think Roy simplified it even more uh -huh. from Yogananda. And then um, instead of being folk technique focused and more focused on perceiving, inviting, and responding to the life force. I mean, Kriya Yoga and Kriya Yoga meditation, Kriya Yoga is a lot of things. I like Roy's holistic way of explaining it. 
in terms of disciplined living, moral, mature, responsible living, holistic living, um, study, self-reflection, surrender, the false sense of self to God, and and a, a deep super conscious meditation practice. I mean, he had this very you know, expansive, holistic way of explaining Kriya Yoga. Um, but, uh, you know, in the end, it, it seems to me that because Kriya Pranayama is the core practice, it's ultimately about um, the mastery of life force. And exactly. Again, not control it, but awakening to it, inviting it allowing it, surrendering to it, and then letting it um, transform, letting it guide you into a deeper state of awareness. Right. And so at that point, my practice then began to move past what was normally taught. Yeah. Well, then I'm feeling guilty again that I'm somehow <laughs> violating the code or violating the tradition. Yeah. So I sat down with Roy one day and I, you know, I said, hey, look, um, I'm practicing Kriya Pranayama in a way that you didn't teach. And uh, it was shifting from really an upward and down movement to just an upward flow. And I was kind of surprised when he said to me, well, that's how I do it. <laughs> right. And I thought, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not teaching that, right? Right. And then it dawned on me that, and I'm assuming that, you know, he was going to teach it the traditional way within his variations. Right. As he understood it and experienced it. But he was having his own personal modifications and variations that he was not teaching, but yet would confirm if you came up with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And, and so um, as this developed for me, um, the, the up and down movement began to become an up and up movement. And then at some point, I, I, and it was after I had actually practiced Kriya Pranayama one day, I could still feel the movement, but as I just kind of observed it, um, it, was, it was flowing on its own, and then later, it, I, I could tell it would just flow with intent. I didn't right. have to worry a whole lot about breathing, uh, pulling it up. It, it, it would move with my intent. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, it would move on its own. Mm -hmm. So, and it just continued to go in that direction. I don't know how wise it is to share all this, but. <laughs> we'll find uh, out. <laughs> but, um, at this point, I, I don't know if this is true, but I, I began to wonder if the up and down movement wasn't an initial practice to purify the body and to purify the subconscious as it's manifest in the body. So much of our subconscious is stored in the body. It's manifest in the body. Right. And so I began to wonder if the up and down movement, um, the purpose of it wasn't to 
do that kind of of subconscious body mind um, purification and harmonizing with spirit, and then at some point, at some point when that had fulfilled its purpose, then the flow began to move upward on its own. Um, up into the higher centers, up into the spiritual eye, and then um, in and or out. Right. And so at that point, and it, it was a very profound, when I finally realized what was going on, and I just decided this was my practice now, and it was really more of an allowing, um, that was a massive shift in depth. Mm-hmm. And... So when I do it now, it flows up. I guess the best way to describe this is um, I do link it with mantra gently. And the first half of the mantra pulls, pulls. uh, The first half of the mantra moves with the current Mm -hmm. up into the mandala. And my mantra has an open sound, right? I mean, an awe sound, an M sound is an open sound, and it can go for an undetermined, you know, as long as your breath doesn't exhaust. Right. And I find that what happens is that the life force that's now centered in the spine moves up. It accumulates in the medulla, and then as I exhale, that's on with inhalation, and as I exhale, as my body exhales, I follow the breath. I don't control the breath. It's much deeper experience and so as the body exhales after that accumulation then uh, it moves through the brain into the spiritual eye and then out through the spiritual eye and so again um, my little ego Phil in the back of the brain there you know who still has some life (laughs) is going who the who the hell do you think you are you're, you're not a master you're not I mean who are you to change Right. Yeah, these practices. And then soon after that, um, just in my normal course of study, I ran ran across these two quotes from Yogananda. And uh, in the one quote, he says, um, by meditation, withdraw your attention from objects of sense and from muscles, lungs, breath and heart. And concentrate, concentrate that freed, atten- freed attention upon the spine. Mm. Then go out through the spiritual eye into infinite space. Right. So that, to me, seemed to be a justification for what was naturally unfolding with me. And then in another place uh, that I ran across a few days after that, he says, um, when the life current is withdrawn into the spine and brain, this interiorization frees the life force from the exitance of senses and their objects. The prana and apana currents, the up and down currents, flowing in the spine become calm and even, generating a tremendous magnetic power and joy. As the meditation deepens, the downward flowing apana current and the upward flowing prana current become neutralized into one ascending current. Right. 
seeking its source in the cerebrum. Hmm. Uh, and then he goes on to say the divine light of life and consciousness perceived by the devotee in the cerebral spinal centers becomes one with the cosmic light and consciousness. So um, I hadn't been aware of these quotes before, or if I had seen them overlooked them, right. But they seem to give support to what, how my practice had unfolded on its own. And at each of those steps, there's just been a, deepening and it's clearly something i couldn't plan or control or follow teaching right and that's something that you know i I think it's important for listeners to recognize is what you're describing was a natural process yes and over years over years right so the reason i'm making that distinction is because you know there's going to be some overachievers out there that are going to be like why don't i just make it go up all the time. Right. And, and, and I, I think it's important to remember like the definition of Kriya Yoga, which is tapas or intensity and spiritual practice. And as you go through that, and then the Yoga Sutras, tapas means to, in a sense, purify the elements, the organs of action, the organs of sense, and then Svadhyaya, the self-study, like you're experiencing, and then the Ishvara Pranidhana. And, you know, Ishvara Pranidhana, Ishvara is often interpreted as God. I don't really like that interpretation. I like kind of what you're describing in the sense of it being life force and this intelligence. Right. Because, uh, you know, even Sri Yukteswar, when he describes uh, emerging in the, the, the Om vibration, it's called the Pranava right? Prana, life force, that current of life. And that's, that's part of how the stages go. And so, I just wanted to make that distinction so people understand that, you know, by doing the Kriya Pranayama as you're taught, what you're describing, there's a, there's a purifying aspect to it. And it might be in time, eventually, it just does flow up like you're describing and you go with it. But you also mentioned, you know, the body and storing karma or storing memory and these types of things. I also have the sense that by doing the Kriya Pranayama, the up and the down, that that is essentially also allowing you to simply have greater awareness of the current. It's, it's bringing, we don't have a lot of body awareness in our culture. And so, it can help bring more of that awareness there so that in time we can become more uh, conscious of this natural upward flowing current. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and and to be open. I mean, I think the basic teachings, the core teachings put us on the right path and get us practicing the things that are foundational for most people. Right. And then at that, you know, at some point when that takes place, then the the practice really is this um conscious surrender, this allowing, this receiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and allowing spirit, life force, whatever, to do its work you know, right. as it draws us into oneness. Well, so one one question for you then on this in this kind of same line. Um, at least in my experience, I still, even though you know my internal practice is a little different than what you know we initially learned just from my own practice like yours um but i still go back to the core practices just to keep myself focused and centered so i guess my question to you would be um what would you say to people about riding the balance between being receptive to the surrender part of it but also 
having a structure so that you just don't get all goofy, as Roy might say. <laughs> <laughs> and sadly, people do get uh, do get goofy. Yeah. Um, for a while, I, I mean, I really appreciate tradition. And so when I first, when this new practice first began, um, I would take maybe a minute to um, do what was my typical mantra practice preceding the new Kriya Pranayama practice. And then I would do three or seven rounds of up and down um, in my mind, it was almost like an honoring of the path and honoring of the tradition and then just let it flow the way it was doing uh, kind of up and out. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I just, there's not a prescribed formula, but I do think it's important to, in some reasonable way, I like being rooted in a tradition. Right. Um, I mean, it's, it's about roots and wings, right? There needs to be groundedness and rootedness in your life. And then there needs to be that freedom of infinite expansion. Mm -hmm. And so how people sort that out, uh, there's always the danger of, of ego slipping in. I don't know, pretending is the right word, but, you know, acting as if it's, in sync with the spiritual path now, and then slowly uh, trying to get control of that for its own purposes. And people and do get, I do see people all the time uh, making a, an egoic, what I would call an egoic turn. Um, and they can get quite either arrogant, egotistical or goofy. Right. Yeah. When I, so when I teach Kriya to individuals, um, you know, I, I go through the routines as Roy taught them, and I do tell them that for the last, you know, 23 years now, I pretty much do the same process that I learned. You know, I, I might add alternate nostril breathing in the beginning, but it's alternate nostril breathing, life force arousal, Kriya Pranayama, Jodi Mudra. Now, I also have a contemplative practice that I add into that, but it's, it's the way I approach it is. I do how I was taught. And then in between each of the practices, it's like in the in-between, I let that process happen as it will. So if I've done mm -hmm. you know, so many Kriya Pranayamas in the way I was taught, then after that, if I feel like you're describing that upward moving current and it's just going, going, I just stay with that for a while. So it's like riding between the, the, pres this, the prescription and then letting the experience happen. And um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, because, you know, like you, we had access to Roy. And so that was a wonderful thing. And so I'm curious, you know, when it comes to participating in this, what are your thoughts on having a living person who can help you in that, you, you know, so that you, you're, you're, you're developing your practice but they might be able to say, hey, maybe you're getting a little goofy. <laughs> you know, any, any thoughts on that? No, I, um, I, I mean, I, uh, I don't know how to say this without sounding um, 
a bit arrogant. Um, well, I've already I've already noticed that using the word goofy has probably already put us or me in the arrogant category. Uh, so, so go for it. <laughs> um, at this point, I I feel completely independent. In spite of saying I respect tradition, I love tradition. I I feel completely independent in my practice. Um, now, early on, for some time. I really needed that person present to point things out, to refine, suggest, point out, um, you know, a couple of times Roy uh, thumped me on the head and, you know, don't do that. Don't think like right. that. Do that. Don't. Yeah. Um, I mean, as you know, the, the ego can become more subtle and it wants to survive and it realizes you're committed to this spiritual path and it can't oppose it directly. So again, I, I find with many people that that tendency, that energy, the false self, in, in a, as a survival move, will align itself with the spiritual practice, and then begin to to um, corrupt it somewhat as it right. goes. So having that external teacher. Uh, recognizing those things and pointing those things out before you get, you know, slip down the wrong path. I found it to be very, very important. Right. Well, and it's important to recognize that, you know, just like when you have a family, you don't want your kids live. Well, (laughs) you don't want your kids living with you forever. Right. (laughs) You want, (laughs) you want them to, to grow up and to be strong and to be able to navigate their life. You know, and, and I think that's really kind of the point of the, the, the idea that the teacher-student relationship is there is this admission, I need to learn and grow. But at some point in time, you know, we do need to say, I absolutely respect the tradition of my teacher, but I've been imparted enough capacity that I can navigate this, you know. Yeah, and, uh, and an authentic teacher wants that. An authentic it, teacher doesn't create dependency. Whenever right. I see teachers creating dependency, I know they're off. Right. And um, so, um, I mean, Roy could be pretty, um, he could have a heavy hand at times, but I always felt the freedom to grow, and I always felt him allowing me to grow. Um, and, and maybe he was more heavy handed with others, you know, some than others, but, um, I I never felt constricted. So, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And all right. So with this process that you're describing you're going through the, well, actually what just came to mind, you know, talking about flowing the awareness out to the spiritual eye. I mean, essentially that's what we're learning to do. And we do Jyoti Mudra, you know, that's part of the process of that. Um, yes, but um, uh, my, my next kind of question was, so for people who have been practicing for a while, who are doing it the way they've been taught and they're doing well, um, what, what would you recommend for them to maybe experiment on their own to uh, how would you recommend to maybe go inward and adapt their practice to start to get a sense of this inner uh, natural flow or this inner natural intelligence, which is, you know, available to them and a part of them. 
Yeah, I'm not sure what to say other than um, I mean, I assume at this point we're talking about people who are able to move beyond just technique and repetition of technique and right. counting numbers and you know um, for me it was just becoming aware of the natural flow of the intelligence, the life, the energy in that and having the the awareness or the faith or the confidence that it was going to um, transform or guide or lead or, you know, unfold or evolve whatever needed to happen for me. Right. Um, would you recommend, you know, that just brought up a thought. Would you recommend, you know, when people are kind of listening to this and thinking about this, if they have that inner sense, I mean, and by that inner sense, I mean an actual healthy confidence that, you know, I've been doing the techniques, I've been, as you said, counting, and I've been doing the repetitions, and I've been having that experience, but I feel that now I could try to experiment with this, again, in a healthy, confident way to do that. But if you're not quite sure yet, then just keep doing what you're doing. W would you say? Oh, yeah. Be I, I, yeah, because once you start monkeying around, I mean, in essence, you're trying to control an uncontrolled process by doing that. Right. I mean, and I find that when I started monkeying around, I would kind of disrupt the flow and, and then I would end up going back to what I was doing previously right? until there was just a natural flowering. You know, it's this, you know, Eckhart Tolle's idea of you, you got to let the flower blossom, you know, right. you can't force it. You, you observe, you wait, you appreciate, you enjoy. Right. And uh, so it, it's almost like, you know, when I think about music, you know, once you have mastered your instrument, then you get up on the stage. Ah, uh, yes. And then you get up on the stage and you improvise. Yes. You, you don't like just start practicing yes. your scales and think, all right, now I'm going to go and play in this band live somewhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, in most cases, except for these prodigies, you know, these, these mega geniuses, which are rare. Um, you know, the master is the person who submitted himself to the discipline to start with. The, right. Right. And then all of a sudden their skills develop to the point where they gain a mastery where they can create, you know, right. be created and, or create. But they know it, you know, I mean, I guess that's the kind of thing I'm trying to focus on. It's like when you know, okay, I can actually do this now versus a, well, maybe I should try, you know, like the, the, the inner knowing is there. I can't say it any better than that. Does that make sense? What I'm yeah, trying to yeah, get at? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, excellent. Um, well, I do want to kind of bump on over to the idea of the persistence of, of I, but uh, before we do that, do you have any final thoughts on the topics we've just been touching on? Um, the only other thing I would mention and that I try to teach people is, is the significance of finding ways to integrate your inner practice with life around you. There you go. Yeah. In relationships, the way you live, the way you interact with life and things and people. Um, I mean, so much of the joyfulness of this. I mean, I, it, you know, when I first began the experience of transcendence and inner awakening, it was so blissful, so joyful. I could see why somebody would just want to sit in a cave 
all day, you know, month after month. But at, at, at some point, I don't think that's the ultimate purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is integrating with creation, with God's creation, you know, with, with what has become the manifestation of spirit and the life that we know. And, you know, oneness means oneness. And so to be able to integrate that inner life with the manifest world, I, I think is significant. And so um, I know a few folks who work hard at inner life, but they're not very good at integrating it. And um, things get a bit confusing. Um, so uh, another practice that I do is, and at first I learned this from Chopra. Chopra in dealing with addiction would talk about that the nature of spirit is ecstasy. I mean, the reason I can sit in meditation for X number of minutes is because it is blissful. It is spirit's a weird thing. It's there's this deep peace, stillness, silence, blissfulness, but there's also a, a, a vibrant ecstasy that's present. It's, it's, they seem like opposites, but they, they can be experienced together. And, um, so he used to always encourage the experience of ecstasy every day. And he would suggest, we, we actually had to draw up a plan for physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and relationship ecstasy. And, and it, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot. I mean, uh, but I had a plan, you know, a little practice every day for each of those things. Of course, the, you know, meditation took care of the spiritual and, and, um, my study, which I love to study and love to learn, that took care of the mental ecstasy aspect of this. But um, to keep people from living in excess or with having addictions or having obsessions that are really contrary to spiritual life, um, one of the things I do is have them experience physical ecstasy every day by using each one of the senses I really believe that the our physical senses are manifestations of deeper spiritual qualities or characteristics, and that each of those senses can um, you can follow each one of those senses back into the spiritual aspect from which that sense has been manifest. They're certainly represented in the chakras, and they're certainly represented in the classic five elements: you know, earth, wind, fire, water, space. Right, and so. You know, every day I I do, I have an ecstatic experience of touch, of smell, of sight, of sound. And taste is harder. You know, if if peaches are fresh and in season, that's easy. <laughs> there's always there's always pizza. <laughs> pizza. <laughs> we have to write a book. Yeah. Pizza and spiritual awakening. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I have folks you know come up with, and it, it, we mean you know we're talking. I mean, it's easy with music. I mean, I have a whole collection of what I call soul music. It's, it's music that vibrates very deeply within my soul. So it's easy to have that in the background or to consciously listen to it for some time. Taste is touch is a, a tougher sight. Um, my wife's smile just always 
is ecstatic to me. I love to look at clouds. Um, I have a favorite fragrance that has been associated with my meditation practice. I have it in a soap and a lotion. And so um, throughout the day, you know, I have it on this part of my arm, you know, I'll take a minute every day just to (laughs) end with that fragrance and, and um, it's ecstatic. You know what I'm saying? And touch, um, my wife likes this. Her, my wife is 72, but her legs are the prettiest legs on the planet. <laughs> and they feel amazing. There's nothing that feels as ecstatic as her legs. <laughs> so every morning, including this morning, she gets this leg massage just because that's my consistent daily practice of ecstatic touch, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Chopra's theory was if you're experiencing ecstasy in each of the senses and if you're experiencing mental and emotional and spiritual and hopefully relationship ecstasy then you're going to be much less prone to obsessions and addictions and excesses that are going to detract from spiritual practice so yeah yeah that's another thing that um is important to me. So in a way, I mean, really what that's doing is you've got your, your spiritual practice, your meditation practice, which gives you that experience of the infinite, the eternal, the timeless, and so on. But it's like that chant, spirit and nature. Oh, yeah. The, the two are together. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and so, and I think you make a good point there, because what a lot of people do is they go so far one way, like I'm just going to sort of escape into a, a spiritual philosophy or practice or community and they ignore oh but i'm a living being here in this part of nature and a- acknowledging that as spirit acknowledging that is also a divine manifestation like if they would if you could do that then that it's like it takes the tension off you know which which allows you to actually go deeper into your meditation but also allows you to be okay when you're not in meditation oh absolutely yeah, yep. that's good. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate that. <clears throat> well, so do you have a moment or two for some talks on the eye? Yeah, let's do it. It's let's do it. Okay. This so is, this gets me in trouble with a lot of people. So that's yeah. okay. I, I, well, I knew I knew it was going to be a, a controversial thing because I may not agree with you. So we're, <laughs> that's we're, okay. <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to have some. We're going to have some. Uh, I thought it'd be good to show people what it's like to have. Uh, uh, healthy debate and disagreement from, on a spiritual topic. Um, <laughs> oh, I don't know, really. We, you know, we talked about this probably two years ago, I think. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know where you've been with it. And I've had my own contemplations with it. And really what it boiled down to was we were discussing, is there a persistence of individuality, either after death or or, or when one is enlightened or, or transcendent and so on? And so you say, yes. Yes. I say no. Anyway. So well let's just talk about it. So yeah. Yeah. what are you what are what are your what is your perspective on this? Yeah. Um it's funny. The the you know, I'm in I'm clearly in the minority. Um you know, in the Buddhist schools, Advaita schools, Vedanta schools, monastic uh, monastic schools, um, I'm certainly in the minority. Um, there's no question that it is in it is egoic individuality that blinds us to 
transcendence and the experience of oneness. Right. That absolutely has to be overcome. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, from the mystical Christian point of view, that's the crucifixion, right? So um, the individuality is crucified and then one is reborn into oneness with God, the, the larger life, the one life. Um, and so I can remember being terrified, absolutely terrified of losing individuality. I mean, that's what we're just so used to, and we can't imagine existing without that. And um, there were times for me, I hear this a lot with my students. Um, I'll have several, you know, it's not uncommon for someone to say, I was at this point in my meditation but I was afraid because if it felt like I, if I took another step, I would cease to exist, right? Yeah, I, absolutely. I hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. And I can remember getting to that point and then just deciding uh, I'm, I'm jumping off that cliff. You know, I'm not holding back anymore. Um, for a birthday present <clears throat> some years ago, <clears throat> my children uh, gave me the, they paid for this. Um, what do you call it? Parasailing, you know, so we have a big giant point of a mountain here and you can get hooked up to this parasail and you literally jump off this high cliff, right? you know, and the winds are always there and then you're floating around in this parasail and I have fear of heights to start with. (laughs) And for some reason they bought this without consulting my fears (laughs) and and when we got up there on the top at the point of the mountain, uh, my son-in-law was also, he paid and was going to do it. He just chickened out. He just said, I can't do this. I mean, it was, it was scary. And uh, well, I, I couldn't, I just, you know, my children are there. My, some of my grandchildren, I just couldn't. You have to be a good example. I couldn't wimp out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I jumped off that mountain i have to say there was a gust of wind that uh kind of gave me the final push i didn't resist it as i had before but between the gust of wind and i'm not wimping out off i went and it was a rather amazing experience i would have never had so I, i can remember being in that point in meditation where you know it was the edge of the cliff of individuality and i just decided to go for it and it was absolutely Amazing. It was a very deep experience of transcendence of the ego, transcendence of individuality. Uh, it was the classic, the ocean becomes the wave. Mm-hmm. The ocean becomes the wave. Pardon me. The wave. The wave. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounded good. <laughs> it goes wave both ways. becomes the ocean, right? I mean, we, you yeah. hear that's the classic example. Yeah. And I really did have that classic experience of why in the heck would I want to be this little wave? When truly I am the ocean, right? Why would you want to be a limited, have a limited experience of life and reality when in fact you can have the full experience? And I actually, one of the most amazing um, spiritual, for lack of a better term, spiritual experiences I ever had, I, I can't remember when it was. 15, 20 years ago, I can't remember, but I woke up one morning when I was working and I got caught in this 
luminous space between sleep and awakening. And there were several seconds there where um, I was physically awakening, but I was still in this deep sleep, you know, beyond phenomena and identification with phenomena. And so when I woke up, I felt completely and fully expanded. I mean, it was glorious. It was like, and, and I, you know, you, the thoughts start, so you're going to start losing it here. But my first thought was, um, I was afraid of losing this poor little Phil guy with all of his problems. <laughs> I, I'm afraid of losing this wave when, in fact, I am the ocean. Um, and I did chuckle there for a little bit because it was just so foolish that I would want to hold on to this little individuality when, in fact, um, I am life itself. I am consciousness itself. And so that lasted for, I don't know, you know, you had these moments, it seems like forever, but maybe it's two seconds. And, um, you know, I glanced over to my closet. I saw my clothes. What am I going to wear today? And then what's time to have to be to work? Whose turn is it to make breakfast? I literally watched my individuality, my egoic individuality assemble itself. I mean, I observed it. Right. And it was like a cocoon. You know, it was like my knees, my fears, my desires, my responsibilities, my commitments, it just all enshrouded me. And I started to feel very, very small, very, very cocooned. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I went through a period of time. I don't know if it was weeks or months or a year. I, I don't remember. But I completely identified with um, the non individual i mean in essence the individual was god i'm I'm a god language person but yeah you know the individual was the self it was god and that's me Mm -hmm. and why would i want to be less (laughs) good question (laughs) (laughs) and so i um i i really identified with that or experienced that as primary reality and then um, at some point, I was, um, I was contemplating a mantra. Uh, it was God in me and God as me. Um, that was a very profound thing for me, um, particularly to help me live beyond, I mean, to really believe in experience, to know an experience that God is in me, God is as me, really elevated my living, so to speak. And so I contemplated that for some weeks and, you know, wanted to integrate that with the world and life around me. And then one, one, one morning as that came into my mind during meditation, I'm powerfully experiencing this, this one reality, God, And then I suddenly became aware that there was still this me, God in me, God as me. And suddenly there was um, a conviction emerged that 
there was still a uniqueness in my journey to oneness that was unlike any others. And nothing is ever lost in eternity. And I suddenly realized that this unique path, the little Phil, um, maintained its existence. And thus, I ended up experiencing myself um, this paradoxical union of universality and individuality. And, and then, you know, one problem I have with um, hardcore Buddhist philosophy and hardcore monism is um, it's like the created world, the manifest world um, was a little stepping stone to help us realize oneness and that once we move into nirvana you know enlightenment that that goes away it was a lesser reality it's an illusional reality it has no real substance to it it just kind of goes away as i merge into this universal self and what emerged within me was a realization that no this creation um, has purpose. This creation was intended to um, continue to exist because when the paradoxical oneness of of universality and individuality are both present, there is a fullness of life that can be experienced that's unavailable to the individual and unavailable to the universal. And that the intent always was for this mystical union. Um, So for, I mean, certainly without the foundational reality of consciousness, existence and being, there's not, you know, nothing's going to exist. It is the foundational reality, but out of that came this creation. And I think this creation um, expanded. <clears throat> I mean, it gave us the opportunity, like a mirror, the opposition of a mirror, to awaken more deeply to oneness because we ended up assuming an identity that was very different than that. But then it dawned on me that it's, it's intended that that uniqueness that variety of creation is part of this whole thing. So I quite enjoy now identifying with my universal nature, but also my little Phil nature. Um, They're both exciting. They're both interesting. They're both fun. They both are one at some point. Um, It's hard to explain, but... Um, I'm convinced now that there is this permanence of individuality. Uh, I I didn't know we were going to talk about this, so I, I've got my Yogananda proof text. There are several places where he does state, you know, we do not lose our individuality by yeah. merging into oneness with God. So I do, you know, hang on to those for some sort of external support. Well, we know we know that you have the proof behind it, so you don't you don't have, we're, we're going to trust you on that. 
<laughs> but so two, I dug them out of uh, God talks to Arjuna, so they're in there. Two two questions I have uh, are number one. Uh, as I was thinking about this, you know, many years ago when we first started talking about it, I wondered um, if that even even with with Yogananda's thing, I wondered if that assertion was more based on uh, kind of a Christian idea. Sure. You know, we talked about the crucifixion being the end of this individual individuality, and and you are a lot more well-versed in Christianity than I am. You know, my experience was going to Sunday school and getting kicked right. out a lot. Right. Um, but I always thought there was this, this sense of this, this, this idea of individuality, you know, when, when the judgment day comes, we're all going to rise up and that kind of a thing. So I wondered if it came from kind of a, a Christian sentiment and that uh, Yogananda was speaking to that. So there's that question. And I will remember my second question. So let's, any thoughts on that? Um, Yeah, there's no question that my original sense of self, like most people, is grounded in individuality. Mm -hmm. And there's no question that my original religious training was focused on that, uh, you know, resurrecting as Phil and interacting with people that I knew in this life and so forth as individuals. I mean, there's no question that was in the background very deep. But you don't think this is that? I don't think so because I surrendered it and I lived beyond that for some time. I, I can't remember the time frame, but um, I, I assumed the, you know, the position of whatever you want to call it, non-dual reality. Um, and uh, was perfectly, I mean, I was ecstatic about it because it was an expanded self. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was quite surprised when I recycled back, and that's not even completely right, but when I, when this experience of still maintaining individuality without losing universality suddenly became a present spiritual realization for me. Okay. Um, I mean, well, let me let me move on to my next question because yeah. maybe maybe this will help. Um, and this is where it gets tricky because I think we're talking about things which are ultimately beyond the human mind's capacity to grasp. Absolutely, um, and that makes it hard to talk about. And and this is based upon you know as I've read the holy science and Shriktishwar's description of how all of this comes to be through the Samkhya philosophy and so on. You know, there are these levels, you know, we've got the elements, we've got our ability to perceive and our ability to act. And then we have the ahamkara or the ego, or the, the sense of separateness. But above that, it's like described as though that's incomprehensible. Right. And, and so, for example, the idea of you can, I, I, incomprehensible, not in the sense of, incomprehensible in that you can experience it, but you can't like write a paragraph about it. Right. You know? And so my question is when you think about this persistence of let's say Phil, is it really the persistence of say the personality of Phil? Uh, 
that's kind of one end of it. Because let's say we're, we're kind of considering like the vastness of time and the fact that Phil is a wave on the ocean, which means if we use the theory of reincarnation, Phil could have been 300 other waves. Right. And Phil right now is not aware of really any of the other waves, right? right? So is it the persistence of this idea of Phil in the collection of your life experiences and your personality and your thoughts and so on? Or is it just the persistence of the ability to feel and experience, like, like when you described having yourself put back together after that morning experience? Well, there was an I there that was not associated with Phil. Right. So it, 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 are you talking about that I, or are you talking about the, the, the idea of Phil itself? <laughs> right. It, it's a good question. I, um, you know, most would say the I is the, is the self I or the God I. That's who you are, you know, a unique expression of that. Yeah. Individualized expression of that. The question is whether that individualized expression simply evaporates and doesn't exist anymore. Um, I was um, many years ago, my son is, I think, uh, 45 or 46. He, you know, you lose track after a while, but mid to late 40s. Yeah. And one morning when he was two, two or three, I was backing out of the driveway um, to go to work. And we'd been playing that morning and he was, didn't want to see me go. And so he was in a diaper with a cowboy hat on. It's kind of a weird look. <laughs> and he got up on the couch at the front window and had his face pressed against the, uh, the window. And he's crying because I was leaving. And I'm here. I am backing out, having to look at him. It was just one of those moments where your heart just kind of opens and breaks and, and uh, it, it really kind of burned itself into my uh, heart and mind. And, um, you know, the next year he was five and the next year he was 10 and the next year he was 20. And, and I, I suddenly realized we, we've become extremely good friends. I'd say we were our best friends now. And, and he is substantively different than that two-year-old in the window. Mm-hmm. I mean, we interact as adults now. Right. I mean, there is a father-son thing, but, you know, in so many ways, he's much smarter than me and has had different experiences. And so there's a lot of sharing at the adult level, but that little kid's still there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what dawned on me was even with reincarnation, you know, each of those lives are different stages and, you know, the two-year-old is in him, the 20-year-old is in him, the 30-year-old is in him. And I experience somehow a unity of all of that in its distinctive way. Um, so, you know, even factoring in different lives, uh, to me, there are similar stages like that. You know what I'm saying? They're all present. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's what makes... My present more conscious individuality. Yeah. I, I think that's what, again, what makes it hard is that. So if we take the idea of infinity and eternity and omniscience and right. omnipresence, well then absolutely the life that we know of as Phil exists in infinity, uh. but we 
in our minds, we tend to look at everything linearly yes. you know, as if it's just going from point A to point B, when really it just might be the consciousness, which is maybe the persistent I, right. is right now just paying attention to this particular span of time that is your personality, my personality, sure. this whole experience. And so in that sense, would the the I would, would would you be persisting? Well, absolutely. But I guess the question is, well, I guess I can get behind this with the idea of there being, you know, that reality or that consciousness, which is all of us, and that can kind of look out through your eyes for a bit, look out through my eyes through a little bit. And it can really get messed up and identified, not messed up. It can become overly identified with one of those things. And, and then that, that avatar seems like it's the only thing there is, you know, like right. personality. But then there is this, there is this consciousness, uh, which is not limited by time or space. And that's why I think even, uh, this is kind of off topic, but even when people recommend, and I do it too, and maybe you do as well, like tuning into the, the gurus of a lineage. Right. You know, in my mind, it's like, I'm not imagining they're like beings of light all around me taking a personal interest in what Ryan's up to. Right. I, I look at it as though their lives were a point in time which represented a, a type of clarity of consciousness and that we have the ability just by thinking about their life or, or, or looking at an image to transcend time and kind of key into that state of consciousness as well. But it's the state of consciousness, which is persistent beyond time, but it's not a personality thing. Right. Okay. So I guess my question to you is, and maybe we're saying the same thing. Um, are, when you talk about this persistence of individuality, are you talking more about a persistence of personality or is it something else? Yeah, boy, that's an excellent question. And, and you know, there's always the, the issue of what I'm experiencing now and what that's going to be tomorrow, you know, <laughs> and for me to say now that I've got ultimate reality figured out and this is how it is. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And how old are you? Uh, 72. Wow, you figured out ultimate reality in 72 years. <laughs> you are good. <laughs> and it's so interesting. I um, um when I study in the mornings, like if I if I, I, I I'll tend to focus, you know, I'll spend X number of months on Jesus studies and I'll spend X number of months on Yogananda study, and I'll spend X number of months on Roy study and and after two or three weeks of immersion into any, any one of those studies, um, I'm, I'm um, for lack of a better term, sensing the presence and even personality of that person. Mm, okay. Um, now, what does that mean? Is it just simply the consciousness of that person or the past consciousness of that person that my mind is now personalizing because there, there is some, there is some presence slash awareness there. And so it's just fun or interesting or enjoyable or satisfying to personalize that. Right. Right. Or is it really, um, 
the personality of that person being drawn to me because of the immersion, you know, in their teachings, word, presence, and spirit, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, I can't say that I know exactly what it is happening there, but boy, it's a very personal, personalized experience, but I could be creating that. Yeah. Um, I, I suspect there's something beyond that happening. Um, and there, and I don't know how to explain this. There are times when I contemplate this and I, I, extend this issue of individuality beyond the present little Phil Florida Gator personality, right? See, I'm wearing a Florida Gator shirt right now, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, I mean, how, how significant is that going to be, you know, in, in the eternities? Am I, you know, in, in 5 billion years in some spirit realm, am I going to be wearing a Florida Gator shirt? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be funny. Well, I'll keep an eye out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at some point, that's really going to have no point of reference. Um, yeah. um, and I can sense um, that what my mind imagines as ongoing individuality is going to be different than the ongoing individuality that I sense is has a ongoing existence. I mean, yeah. I can sense there's a difference between the reality of that and how my mind wants to hold on to it or imagine it. Um, my conviction comes from, I don't know how to explain this. I, I remember it's been a while since I've read this, but I remember Alan Watts criticizing the philosophy of monism and explaining how it it really can't capture all of reality mm. where it's deficient. And uh, I remember him trying, and however he explained it, um, that the concept of non-duality really is the not one, not two. Not just not two, that's it. No, it's right. not one, not two. And uh, that coupled with was that in the book, The Supreme Identity? I think I was just reading that oh, last night, actually. Oh, uh, I've actually got that book sitting over here in my favorite. <laughs> there, there was something that he was talking about. It's is along the lines of what you were saying. I just read it last night. And uh, essentially, it was describing, like, just get both of those. Just don't think of either of those things. Like, like right. let go. Let, like, let, like, quit thinking one, quit thinking two. Just, just let the thoughts go and then experience what is. It, it was something like that. Yeah. I'm not yeah. sure if that's what... Um, he, he just, he was explaining how a, a, uh, what would be called a, um, I don't know if you, um, I, I recent, not recently, last couple of years, I discovered, uh, Swami Pramananda, who was the boyhood, he was a boyhood friend of Yogananda. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. He brought him over to help. He ended up establishing himself in Washington, DC. Right. And then when he realized uh, toward the end of Yogananda's life, when he realized that the SRF ladies were intending to take over his property there in Washington, D.C., he, he reincorporated into a new entity you know, where he was no longer an adjunct of self-realization fellowship so that he could maintain his property and building. Yeah. So when Yogananda passed away, um, he was an independent 
right? Right. Priya yoga teacher, uh, which angered them to the point that they airbrushed him out of Yogananda's funeral pictures. But uh, <laughs> oh, the drama! <laughs> he was there to do the Vedic part of the the funeral service. I mean, they just airbrushed him out. They were so mad at him. Yeah. But um, he renamed his organization the Church of Absolute Monism. <laughs> wow! So he's, yeah, he's into it. Yeah. But um, yeah, Watts explains how. Um, a, a philosophy of monism is in essence dualistic because it's denying the other side. Yeah, exactly. And um, so there are some valid intellectual issues to discuss there. But for me, the conviction comes from the, the sense, the experience that when the unmanifest manifest, it wasn't just manifesting a stepchild that would disappear at some point that it right. was that creation occurred by which and through which the infinite and eternal could be manifest in a myriad of individual ways right that provide the experience of a fullness of life that that, that the one life in and of itself cannot experience. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's deficient. These, you know, we're, we're into our mental categories now, but um, I, I just became convinced that this union of universality and individuality uh, is a point where both can be experienced. Um, one is a foundational reality. The other is an expressive reality and it's intended the creation is intended to go on and on and on and on infinitely, you know, right. infinite creation, infinite expressions of individuality. Well, ultimately, uh, you know, now that we're talking, I don't feel like I disagree with you. Church of absolute individuality is born. I don't feel I disagree with you, but you know, it's, um, I think we're kind of bordering certainly on, we're on the edge of mysticism. Absolutely. Because these are things that you and I, we could probably talk about this for days, right. but the only way that anyone can really come to a realization about it is by practicing their, their techniques, being curious and seeing what happens, you know, cause the way you're describing things, like I remember experiences of, um, a sense of, I was doing a particular mantra to one of the, the Hindu deities, and there was a sense of merging with that deity. But there was also a sense that this Ryan could not exist while experiencing that. Mm -hmm. And so it was as if there was, like, I, I know I, I felt the fullness of it and the wholeness of it, but what I am now who's talking to you was not able to exist in that, but there was something right which which persisted through that right and and that's one of the reasons why i love ramana maharshi's approach to things because you know it's it, he he talks about experiencing what were you experiencing in deep sleep right and i know i ryan was not there in deep sleep and and yet people i think people miss mistake that and they think you're kind of just supposed to walk around like a mindless zombie you know and that's not what he's talking about. You know, the, those states, the Jagrat and Sushupti and Swapna and so on, what he's saying is 
learn to access those deeper states of consciousness. But that's not, that's not just Ramana Maharshi. If you read the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, they describe going through these subtler states of consciousness to access the you know, immortal, infinite, omniscient, Ishvara, I, you know, you know, that, that aspect of self, which like you said, is, is if it's infinite, then it goes on forever. Right. You know, and, and one of my most profound, uh, I guess you could call it a spiritual experience, when it, it just hit me like a, a truck, it, it was this, this feeling and even the words, there's no end to this. You know, that we have this idea that we want to escape or we want to transcend into something, but really there's no end to this constant experience, you know? So anyway, um, yeah, I think, or I feel, I suppose that we're, we're bordering on something that can't really be described, but can be experienced. And we might need to start with something like an idea of monism or dualism, because that might be what as an individual we need to get yes. us going in that direction yes. to figure out what's really going on. Yes. Yes. I, it, it's always been my experience. I have to be in a position to be able to transcend it, move beyond it. Right. And yeah, um, yeah I agree. And yeah. we are dancing around the edges of, of the profoundly mystical, you know? Right. Right. And you can only experience that. You can't, that's why mystics all seem like they're crazy. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Cooper used to use the expression saints, psychotic, and psychotics and sages. <laughs> all <laughs> right. in the same club. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, anyway, well, I'm glad we were able to have that conversation. So so thank you for that. It's been like two or three years in the making. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I and I know I'm in the minority, but uh, No, I mean I think it's good for people to I think it's good for people to have different perspectives to help inspire them in their own search of what's possible, you know, because more than like this might speak to a number of people and might help them in some way. So, yeah. All right, Phil. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time today to be here. And it's always wonderful to talk to you. Oh, I, I, I always enjoy talking with you and I'm grateful for your friendship and all that we've experienced together. Yeah, you too. And um, I just want to remind people who are listening, um, if you want to hear more from Phil, um, I'm sure you can Google him. But on the Kriya Yoga podcast, um, he was on episode three from Mormon to Kriya Yogi. And then episode four, or excuse me, episode 14, Yoga and the Christ Consciousness. And that's where I believe uh, we talk about that article you yeah. wrote about Yoga and the Christ Consciousness. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.